The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or It's like if a camera flash had a sound. Join the conversation on our social media. Another fun-filled and exciting episode. You're listening to Just Some Podcast. And here's your hosts, Ben and Tom. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. And this is Ben. Tom, man, how's it going, bud? It is going swell. Gotta love winter weather. Not really. <laughs> like, I love the fall, but man, ice and snow, uh, not my favorite driving condition. Gotta be honest. That's why I don't live where you live. Well, someday, I'm still working on it. So, uh... <laughs> I know you had an exciting week. How was your week? No, my week was great. Went on vacation. Uh, it was just my wife and I left the kids at home with the grandparents, and we got away to the wonderful, fun, and exciting town of Las Vegas. So got to see a bunch of cool shows over there and had a great time and got to kind of recharge our batteries a little bit. Yes, uh, just for the crowd to get a little personal insight, at one point I texted him and was like, hey, how's it going? Uh, how's the show? And he's like, well, if you want to see a six foot nine male in heels, you know, I guess it's pretty cool. I said, no, I draw the line at six, eight, six, nine is just too tall. So that was, uh, I, I, I'm not going to lie. You know, I still want to see this company in particular. I don't want to mention it. I'm afraid we'll get trashed or sued or something, but they make several other shows. I'd like to see one of them, but I'm not sure that particular one is one I'll be attending. It was actually very interesting, and uh, it was uh, it was a good show. There was lots of good shows out there. We've seen like six different shows while we were out there, and the hotel was really amazing. And So it was a good time. It was good, it was good to get away from the office for a little while. I really need to go to Vegas. Believe it or not, I've seen Paris, Berlin. I've done all that stuff, and somehow I've not gone to Vegas. So I think that's that's going to be on the uh, trip planner sometime for me and the wife as well. Or maybe you and I should just go together and we could have make it make it like a guy's weekend. What do you think? I think we're going to wake up with Mike Tyson's tiger and a chicken <laughs> in our room if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's okay. good golf. Yeah, probably right. I mean, I'm still willing. Like I say we do it, but at the same time, like I'm afraid, honestly, that our wives would get together and be like, okay, well, we'll do some girl stuff while they're doing that. And I, I don't want to deal with the repercussions of that any more than I want to be arrested in Vegas. So, I mean, there's that. Well, they'll just have to make sure they take away our social media before we go. Cause we don't want to be posting anything on there. Yes. The last time we did some live videos on Facebook, we caused an uproar in a major metropolitan zoo. So let's, <laughs> you know, no more of that. Probably wasn't the last time that we did some Facebook live videos. We have done some for our group, which, you know, if you're not, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not part of our group, we do have a official Just Some podcast for advanced practitioners group on Facebook. Um, and they do get some exclusive content and exclusive videos. So make sure you join that group. Hey, and since you said social media, this week I'm going to do something. Watch this. Um, so you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at just some podcast and our webpage www.justsomepodcast.com and Ben how else can they help us out well <laughs> that was really good Tom I'm, I'm impressed <laughs> for a loop, I was all ready to go and ah, okay um, well what Stole else can, his thunder <laughs> you did a little bit what they can do is they can make sure that they stop what they're doing Pause the podcast. Give us five-star ratings on wherever you're listening to this, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever it is. The other thing that they can do is share us on social media. Tell all your friends all about us that we're uh, two funny guys that do occasionally get some good information. And you can also click on our Amazon affiliate link on our website. You click on that. takes you to Amazon. Do all your shopping. doesn't cost you a dime extra. 
and it helps they kick back some of that back to the show. See, I, I'm not going to say it was bad, but it just felt weird. It did feel weird. Did <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that. Ugh. And when you were saying, and occasionally they give out some good information, I was I was like, very occasionally. So <laughs> Actually, our last episode, uh, we've I've had lots of positive responses from. So, you know, like we had the one person comment on our page that it was the best episode they'd heard so far. Did they rate us? I, don't, I didn't ask. I don't know. <laughs> it was on our Facebook page, so I don't know. Nah, probably not. That's okay. I'm glad you guys are listening. I'm glad somebody's getting some good information. Hopefully you'll get even more. This episode may, in fact, run just a tad long just because of all the information we're going to pack into it. And I – well, let's let's get into stories we missed. What do you say? Let's – well, before we do the stories, we should probably do our shout-out that we wanted to do, too. Oh, yeah. I'll start off by doing it backwards. I do want to <laughs> give you, or we want to give a huge shout-out to somebody on Instagram that gave us a shout-out about our billing episode. And I'm, so I am dot nurse dot Liz, and she's a nurse practitioner, and she does different videos and uh, answers questions and does a lot of stuff. So we did reach out to her in regards to being on the podcast. And so we're going to have her on a future episode as well. So we appreciate the shout out and keep letting everybody know how, uh, how awesome our show is and we'll have you on soon. Yeah. And make sure you follow her on Instagram. It, it is a very interesting, um, what is it called on Instagram profile? Like what, uh, whatever it is, follow that, follow her. I am dot nurse dot Liz. Uh, really funny. I really liked ha- adding her onto my Instagram. So that's been really cool. Second, uh, we have an update because we do love the updates on mm-hmm. stories we've done. And it's not that I've won a Nobel Peace Prize for my Sudoku referencing. I'm not still yet. waiting. I'm not not yet. yet. Not yet. You, those sons of bitches. I'm, if they think I'm giving up, uh, I'll bring, I'll bring, I'll bring my wife on and she'll let you know if I forget anything, if it spurns me. I'm telling you right now, like it's, oh no. It's happening. But this is not that. This is an update on the pregnancy of a patient in, in Arizona? Yeah, Arizona long-term care facility, yeah. Okay, a – let me get his exact name here. I know he was an LPN. I don't yes. I don't recall his name. Yeah, the suspect has been named as a Nathan Sutherland, 36 years old, who worked in the Hacienda Healthcare Clinic. So we got him. I guess. I mean, not we. They got him. So, I mean, I'm happy, though. I'm, there's some closure to the situation, and we can kind of see what's going on. And I'm glad. A bad guy did a bad thing, and he should be caught for it. And hopefully, and I suspect that we'll see, you know, some changes coming, not just in Arizona, but in other LTACs, just to make sure that, you know, these vulnerable patients are kept safe. You know, nursing is one of the professions that is always rated high as far as ethics and honesty and trust in the public. And we need to ensure that we work to keep that that way. So, you know, this is kind of that police in our own. I'm glad that this person got caught and I hope that they're prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Yeah, because she was, I believe they said she'd been under their care for at least 10 years. So unless they're yeah, I, I can't imagine that there was any sort of consensual whatever going on there. So I'm, I'm glad they caught him. Let's see what happens with that. We'll keep you updated. Also, I guess we got multiple stories. A physician for a health system in central Ohio, Mount Carmel Healthcare System. Well, I don't know all the details, so I don't want to give out the entire story. They're still covering it because it's, it's a pretty big deal. And apparently this physician, a Dr. Hussle, who, whatever, something like that, he decided at some point to uh, euthanize a patient, basically, from my understanding. I'm saying from, from what I have read and just a little bit that's come out about this, I don't believe it was just a patient. I believe there was multiple patients. And you know, there was actually some discussion on Facebook about thoughts on this. You know, this did not make number one. From my understanding, physician-assisted suicide is not legal in the state of Ohio. It is not. And two, this did not appear to be anything as physician-assisted as far as consent from families or patients or anything like that. This appears to be more just old-fashioned euthanasia, which is 
horrible to think that that could still be occurring. And the last little flash of information I've seen on it, and again, I don't have all the information and I haven't deep dived the story. I just know we wanted to cover it for briefly. Mount Carmel now says that at least, at least 34 patients have been given pain medications. Now, it doesn't say if they passed away or if it was an attempt, but at least 34 patients now. So I, what, what do they call it when nurses do it? Or that one nurse in England, he killed a bunch of people, like the angel of mercy or angel of death thing. Yeah, something I don't remember. Yeah, something I think. Yeah, he just, they just, just took it upon themselves to fast forward the whole process. And uh, that wasn't really their call. So I truly feel for all our APP, and I know a few physicians listen to us. Uh, if you are working in that inpatient setting, I'm sorry, because I'm sure your world, there's going to be some fallout for this when it comes to medications and stuff like that that are potentially dangerous to patients. So, yeah, we had a bunch of stories this time around. So, Well, I still have one for you that I had not. This is the one that we talk in pre-production about what story we're going to do for stories that we may have missed. And Tom had one and I told him, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to audible at the line on this one and I'm going to pull out a different story on you. We'll save yours for next week. But the reason I did this was because I was, uh, as I was walking in my door to my home yesterday, this popped up on my phone and I went, you've got to be shitting me. So, and he would not tell me, he said he wanted to hear what I had to say. My reaction on the air. So let's, let's find out what it is. Tom, have you ever heard of Vave tissue? V-A-E-V tissue. No. Okay. Well, this is the new startup company in Los Angeles. And for $80, they will send you a box of tissues that are designed to give you the cold virus. People have sneezed into them already. And have guaranteed to sneeze cold virus into these. I think you're, what people can't see is your facial reaction because um, we, we FaceTime while we record. Yeah, so this company has 10 designated sneezers that sneeze over these tissues and then they ship them out. And this the tagline for this company, you get sick on your own terms. This is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. For holy cow, who? Why? What? What could possibly possess a person to want to do this? And they clearly don't understand how this works. Well, I found the article and then I did some more research in it because when I first read the article, it was on social media, I believe, and I'm like. This has got to be fake. Like, this can't be real. You know, like, no, so no something this stupid, this, something this ridiculous has got to be true. So, I actually found a Time article, Time Magazine article, and that's what I will link to on our website. But this guy decided, you know, it's, this is the best way to do it. Get sick on your own terms. You know, there's, is discussion, obviously, that he clearly doesn't know how microbiology works because there's about 200 types of common colds. So you're really just exposing your, this almost reminds me of like chicken pox parties and, and or like when they had the bird flu and they were going to do bird flu parties. That's what this really kind of sounds like. The, the crazy part, Tom, the website is currently sold out of tissues, which means either they don't really sell them and he's just listed as as sold out, or there are people out there who have bought these. First of all, if they're selling them, I guarantee you there are people buying them because there are people that believe the earth is flat. There are people that don't believe a vaccination. I guarantee you there are people buying these things and they're showing up in some poor urgent care doctor's office or emergency room going, hey, I bought these tissues to give me the cold, and now I have the cold. (laughs) Which, first of all, they probably don't, or if they do, we're like, it's a cold. (laughs) Go away. I mean, not legally, but that's what we want to say. I oh god I you know I don't know what reaction you were waiting from for me it's more I feel like I'm flabbergasted I don't know like that's kind of what I was hoping for yeah oh god 
Apparently, there's also concerns with this company in regards to sending viruses through the mail. According to the United States Postal Inspection Service, uh, the law enforcement arm of the USPS, mailing infectious substances is only allowed when it's intended for medical or veterinary use, research, or laboratory certification. The owner of the company says he's talked to his attorneys and sending (laughs) sending the common cold in Kleenexes is fine, apparently. (laughs) Oh, God. Wow. I feel like a, I feel that cussing rant on the back of my tongue, but I'm I'm just gonna say I really truly hope that these people go out of business very soon, and not because I'm that worried about people getting the cold. Just the pure ignorance of what you just said has made me a little dumber, and may God have mercy on your soul for making me hear that. You're awarded no points. <laughs> yes, you're awarded no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. I, I that. Well, we talked about it in part one of this, like there's just this epidemic of medical misknowledge and how things work going on in this country. And this should be a shining example of that. I just, oh God. I thought you'd appreciate that. So on that note, are you ready to get into our main topic? Now that I want to bang my head off a table. Yeah, sure. Let's get it. Let's get into this. So I, and I, because of the topic matter and everything, I know me and Ben, we have the little disclaimer at the beginning of the show, but I wanted to go into this again specifically for this is we are not addiction specialist. We are going to give you some information. Some of it's based on our opinion through research. Some of this is based on some limited training that we, myself specifically, but I'm sure Ben has gone through some training as well. Yeah. So this is to help you out. If you're a patient or uh, a civilian, I don't know what else, non-medical person listening. And I know we have several of those. You know, this is some of the things we're dealing with. If you're an APP or staff nurse or something like that, this is going to help you out. If you're one of the physicians listening, actually, you're going through the same training we are. But I I just want to make it clear that this is a very in-depth subject matter, and we are kind of giving some educational highlights. At the very end of the day, if there is a true question about treatment or anything like that, please make sure you direct it to an addiction specialist or one of the appropriate organizations. And we're going to list those throughout this, this episode. I just want to make sure that people listening truly take that to heart. What we're saying. Part one of our episode that we did last week was kind of the history of opium and opioids and kind of the, what we saw as kind of the big four catalysts that led to a perfect storm of the opioid crisis, quote unquote. So if you're not listening to that episode, please go back and do listen to it because I mean, it was good. It was good information, but this is just going to continue to build on that. So now we're going to look this week into kind of where we are now and how, you know, what can we do from here? Right, Tom? Yeah. So, and I know we, Ben and I are going to have some different perspectives. I mean, I know we have some similar thoughts. However, I happen to be in an area that some, like I I think I said this in the first episode, some would consider where I'm at, you know, part of ground zero for the heroin epidemic going on in America. And it's something I've dealt with as a staff nurse, not so much on the provider side yet, but, and I think that's by virtue of, you know, what I do now and the office I work in. But when I was in the ER setting, this was literally a daily occurrence to treat the patients legal and illegal due to opiates, heroin, etc. So, yeah, I, I think it, we're going to be able to give you a good taste of what we're seeing now and then what we're trying to do about it. As far as for now, I kind of wanted to start with some statistics, just so those who are not aware kind of are aware of how widespread this issue currently is. These statistics are pulled from the CDC, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and the Department of Health and Human Safety. In 2016, healthcare providers across the United States wrote more than 214 million prescriptions for opioid pain medications. Uh, that's a rate of 66.5 prescriptions per 100 people. That has since went down. I believe it's down to about 47 prescriptions per 100 people. So, I mean, they we are working toward improving that. Um, as many as one in five receive prescription opioid long-term for non-cancer pain in primary care settings. Uh, More than 11 million people abused opioids in 2016. 
Every day, more than 1,000 people are treated in emergency departments across the United States for misusing prescription drugs. Uh, drug overdoses claimed the lives of nearly 64,000 Americans in 2016. Nearly two-thirds of these deaths involved either a prescription or an illicit opioid. So that's kind of a broad strokes look at where we are currently. And just to, just to throw out some more information, and I think this is based off a 2013 study, so I will tell you flat out right now that these numbers are going to be bigger than the percentages I'm about to say. But of roughly 5.2 million addicted, identified as addicted. So let's just, let's preface that. Like those are people that we've found. So you can guarantee that number is bigger of how many people are actually abusing opiates. Of the 5.2 million in the study, 72% did not get any treatment. They did not have access or weren't available to it. So 72% of people that are having this problem aren't able to get treatment for it. Of the drugs or drug overdose reported, 19% were from heroin, 37% were from opiate-based medications, and the remaining 44 was from other drugs. So opiates and heroin are accounting for the majority of what we're seeing. So, And those, I think, were 2013 numbers, and I can tell you right now, I know those numbers are going to be higher. If they did a new study for 2018, we're going to have bigger numbers. Now, I did find one article that I found interesting in regards to this, and it was analyzing the drug abuse epidemic. And if anybody's interested, we can certainly throw a link up on our page. The actual title of the article is Changing Dynamics of the Drug Overdose Epidemic in the United States from 1979 through 2016. So they analyzed 600,000 unintentional drug overdoses over a 38-year period. And basically what they found is that regardless of what the drug is, we are currently on an exponential linear growth for overdose deaths. Like even looking back into 1999, it was heroin. Then it became cocaine for several years through like 2007. Then it became prescription opioids. And then in 2013, 2014, it looks like it was uh, heroin, and then that has went up exponentially from from there through synthetic opioids that are not prescribed. So they're saying that this problem has been going on for over 40 years, well before the availability of synthetic opioids, uh, well before prescription opioids were pushed. And their exact quote was... This is the reason the United States society needs to pay attention to the loss of the sense of purpose, the widening economic disparities, and the loss of community. They're saying it basically has very little to do with the actual opioid itself and more so just the United States society as a whole. Well, while I know we covered some of that pill-based society in episode or part one of this, the fact remains is once these people are becoming addicted, and true, I understand the fuse that is being lit by a society that is acting in this manner. Once they have become addicted, it is now a bigger problem. Like it's a problem that is now in our lap and we're going to have to deal with it. I know there are people that, again, I live in an area and I've been trained and I have given out Narcan kits, etc. I have Narcan kits on me because of how widespread opiate overdoses, including heroin are. But the, the fact remains, it's it's something we're going to have to deal with. So I, I understand the argument and I agree with it. And that's going to stop the future problems, but we're still having a problem now. Right. And the graph, the graphs for this are spectacular. When you look at the rate of drug addiction and overdose deaths related to heroin and synthetic opiates like fentanyl and stuff like that. I don't remember specifically. I want to say it was from SAMHSA. SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. You can find some of the, a lot of good information on there or from ASAM, which is the American Society of Addiction Medicine. They have graphs where it shows like, you know, 99, 2000, and then like a rocket ship, whatever year it is, deaths and addiction just go through the roof. Well, and I think if you even think back to like, hell, Tom, even when we were kids, you know, it seemed like... In the 80s, it was like cocaine. And, you know, you always heard about like Eddie Murphy or different people like crack. Yeah, crack and powder cocaine. And yeah. then in the 90s and early 2000s, it was methamphetamine. And then after that, it's become opioids, uh, whether it's prescription or heroin or whatever the case may be. 
So, and, and that's what I'm saying. I, well, I guess that's part of what I'm saying is I understand what the article said and what you're saying. And I agree with it is we have a society that does this, but like when I got into law enforcement, early two thousands, we were dealing with methamphetamines the way we're dealing with heroin now. Yeah. I, I don't want to name specific areas, but the County I lived in, we were busting hundreds of labs a year. Hundreds. Yeah. I mean, that's for methamphetamine. So, but we took measures, the state and the government, you know, state government, federal government got together and said, hey, we need to curb this. And they effectively curbed the production, at least on the local level. So we recognized there was a problem and we tried to stop it, but we didn't stop the reason. And I honestly, I don't know anymore without a huge cultural shift if we can. Right. And that's unfortunately kind of the sad but truth to it is, you know, unless something I I don't even know what it would be that would change the cultural outlook of the United States as a whole. I'm at a loss for words on that because I don't know. I just truly don't know. And, And it extends beyond that. Like I was having this conversation with one of my nurses the other day was people come in for antibiotics. Yeah, and I'm like, but you don't need an antibiotic. But they think there's some magic in azithromycin and that if they take it, everything will be fine. And I'm like, but it's not going to help. And I say, by the way, this is how superbugs are created because of situations like this. And they they just flat out are like, yeah, but I still need one. I'm like, no, you don't. So I it's it extends beyond just this heroin. But unfortunately – Getting back on topic, <laughs> that's that's where we're at. Well, and looking at it from a before we get into like treatment options, things like that, I kind of wanted to talk about more the what we kind of currently do for family practice. At least from kind of where I sit, have definitely had to change practices as far as how we prescribe. I do know that I honestly cannot remember the last time that a drug rep has come in for any type of an opioid pain medication. It's been probably a year uh, since I've seen a drug rep for an opioid, which is good because that lot, because there for a while they were really promoting the like tamper resistant formulation. Like oxy, yeah. Like oxycontins and stuff like that. Yeah. Or like Opana ER, which is actually the, the FDA requested they pull that off the market too, because they found it could be misused. But like one thing I have done is I have implemented controlled substances contract. And that's not just for opioids. That's for Anything that is Schedule 2 through Schedule 5 that I am going to routinely prescribe for you, you're going to sign a controlled substance contract. What that does is that helps to hold both of us liable. You understand, yeah, as a patient, you understand what is expected of you. And some of those expectations are that there can be pill counts and you can be asked to come in and do a pill count. I have it specifically written into my contracts that they have... If I was to call and ask for a random drug screen, they have 24 hours to respond. If they wait beyond that 24 hours, that's considered a failure. And at that point, then we will begin to taper off of medications and recommend substance abuse treatment. And, you know, you get all kinds of excuses. I mean, I've, I've heard they put cocaine in the wine or I don't use methamphetamine. It was just in my system. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, but, but from, from a prescriber standpoint, my hands are tied. I now have a drug screen showing this in your system. And if I continue to prescribe a medication to you, knowing that this is in your system, uh, I'm throwing my DEA license away more or less if they were to come in and randomly search that. So I will also tell you, and I guess I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but we can backtrack. It's not a big deal is uh, one of the addiction specialists when they were talking about that, because it is recommended and I'll give a little more exact about this when we cover it here shortly, but they were talking about this exact scenario, but in addiction, if you're an addiction treatment program, they actually were like, we expect this, like this is going to happen. So you as the prescriber need to be aware and know what you're going to do. And honestly, the majority of uh, addiction specialists, all the ones that I know of so far, they are, that is not by itself a game ender. If you come in and they're like, hey, you know, this is what's going on. The one thing I heard and and I thought it was very honest and I thought it was very helpful was if you tell me what's going on, you're here for addiction. We're going to help you. And I expect this. I'm going to try and get you to stop taking, you know, other substances. What I can't deal with is you lying. Dishonesty to an extent is much harder to deal with than polysubstance. And I'll agree. I agree wholeheartedly with that. I have had patients come in and they have told me, for example, hey, 
I have been having problems, and so I have the pain has increased, or I've had more anxiety, or whatever the case may be. And so instead of taking the two that are prescribed, I've been taking three, or or whatever the case may be. And I tell them, if you're honest with me and you communicate with me what the hell's going on, we can work together to address that. It's whenever you're like, no, I don't use anything else, and then we do a random drug screen and find out that you are, or we use K-Trax or prescription monitoring service and find out, no, you're getting prescriptions from two other states, then that's where we start having problems. Yeah. And so again, that's important that anyone that is prescribing this is is monitoring that because it is it gets very easy to fall into the trap of, oh, grandma... Elsa, she wouldn't she wouldn't lie to me. Well, she might. So if you're if you're dealing with these types of drugs, it's extremely important. And again, it's also very important to understand your population and where you're at. Because currently where I'm at, if you are giving a controlled substance, trust me, all eyes are watching. It, It is a very it is a very tightly regulated by law, by protocol, everything where we're at right now. I guess that's something I know we're going to describe later, but I truly feel for those patients with chronic pain because we are being stuck between a rock and a hard place in properly treating these people because of the abuse of others. And unfortunately for those patients, they do have to kind of jump through the hoops and they have to understand that going into it. They they have to understand that they're going to be held just as liable for random drug screens, pill counts, things of that nature as the drug seeker who's coming in as well. You know, and it's a shitty deal, but it's the best deal that we have at this point. You know, I really don't know what else to say about that other than that's just kind of the way that it is. And some of the ingenuity of what these guys are doing, if they are trying to purposely evade, just for people that didn't know, I didn't know, stuff like pill banks... I think me and you have talked about that a little bit. We talked briefly, but yeah, go ahead and explain it for everybody. Yeah, so a pill bank is a obviously some type of obviously non-sanctioned. <laughs> These are not real. Like there are no pharmacy calling itself pill bank that I'm aware of. God, if you're a pharmacy called pill bank, I'm really sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> if uh, what they'll do is like, okay, let's say Ben says I want a pill count. They will go to one of these places, these pill banks, and they'll say, I need 10 extra Xanax. And they basically pay for them, and they're given 10 Xanax with the understanding that when they bring them back, they'll basically get a refund. It's like a blockbuster video for whatever medication that you may want. So one of the things I would definitely suggest is if you have a patient or you suspect that there is abuse going on, but you are doing pill counts and you're like, oh, you need to employ a variety of different methods of testing to ensure that this is happening or that they're taking medication that's prescribed. Well, and the other thing to do with pill counts is you need to be very knowledgeable of what the pill is supposed to look like, you know, and lots of times it'll say, you know, M357 or whatever the case may be as, as far as what the descriptor should be. Because there are patients who, or if they're attempting to deceive you, will try to slide. I you know, I have heard stories of them sliding Tylenol in to make the pill count right, hoping that you won't notice the difference in the pills because they look close enough to the, to the same. So if you are doing pill counts and you are prescribing medications, ensure that the medications are all the same and that's not being, you're not being deceived in that point either. So, and I will cover some uh, UA learning things because I, like I said, I went through training. I guess, can you want to start going into yeah, treatment? I, think, I guess. Yeah. So, just, just a little background. Again, not an addiction specialist. None of this training made me an addiction specialist, but I, I just went through some training related to treatment methods for this. And it, it's, it's just amazing what they're trying to do. And they kind of covered information like urinary analysis and stuff like that. And honestly, when you're dealing with these types of drugs, it may behoove you to get the further inspection. Don't just believe the results right off the bat of what you're seeing on a dip or an initial UA because there can be false positives or something like that based on the medication combinations, etc. So getting into this, let's let's go over I keep saying we're not addiction specialists. So what is an addiction specialist? An addiction specialist is an MD or DO. It is not currently a certification or title available to APPs. These physicians they complete a fellowship and take a board certification for it. So this is a complete 
fellow new avenue of training. I want to say it's around 2,000 extra hours of training. Interesting. And just dedicated to just addiction medicine. There's only – well, and I saw two different numbers, but they're both low. Between 3,000 and 4,400 in America, that's it. We have roughly 20 million addicted Americans, and we have between 3,000 and 4,400 people to take care of. Yeah, that doesn't divide out well. Yeah, it, it does not divide up. It's kind of like the mental health issues when you're like, what do you mean there's no beds? <laughs> there, there, yeah, there, there's a reason. It's because there's not a lot of them. So a couple other acronyms you may hear us throw out throughout this would be uh, OUD, which stands for Opioid Use Disorder, and MAT, which is Medication Assisted Treatment. And the actual definition of addiction, this comes from the DSM-5, it is a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry with a dysfunction in these circuits, an individual pathologically pursuing reward and or relief by substance use and other behaviors. So that's technically what an addiction is versus craving because they talked about that. Are they addicted? Or are they craving, etc.? And so when you have some of this information, you can start putting together. And one of the first things for treatment, and I think Ben would agree here, is you need to know your population. Yeah. And realistically, it breaks down to the fork in the road becomes is the addicted person you're seeing in front of you there for illegal or legal substance abuse? Right. That's the first thing I would say we need to define. But here's here's the caveat to that is the same person can be doing both. They might legally be prescribed Xanax and scoring Percocet out on the street. So you need to know what you're looking at when you're first deciding that this patient may need uh, addiction treatment. Now, is this something that, I mean, obviously we're going to, or you know, are we making the assumption that they want treatment? Because, I mean, I have... So. Even if you look at things like alcohol or smoking, because when we do our annual exams for like Medicare, we know we are supposed to address that. And I ask patients, are you smoking? Yes. Do you have any desire to quit? No. At that point, I'm not going to try to force, well, here's Cantex or here's whatever the hell. Because they have so, so that would be part of your decision process. Once you've identified the patient okay. is uh, addicted, I would say – Okay, if they're willing, because there's no point in trying to get them into a treatment program or an addiction specialist if they don't want to go. That's just your, your failure. That's literally the next thing I was going to cover. So right. like I said, me and you, we're on the same page. So no, that that's literally – and then know your resources. Do you have an addiction specialist? Do you have in or outpatient treatments? Do you have methadone clinics? Do you have any primary care providers with Suboxone waivers? So knowing who you're going to send them to is also a vital piece of this puzzle. And one of the things that was stressed with medication-assisted treatment is you have to get them into some kind of counseling. It's the standard of care because the one does not function without the other. It's like a tire without an engine. Yeah, you have a tire. You can move, but you're not going to. So one of the reasons they brought that up is the vast majority, almost every person that the addiction specialist was talking about, they were like, you're going to find physical, mental, sexual health, some type of trauma in their history or a combination of all those. And if that is part of the reason that they have slid down into this addiction or the very fact that they're addicted and they're trying to deal with their own addiction. What if they're a working professional? They were a doctor. They were a lawyer. Right. Now they have some mental health issues and they're going to need the help. So here is some things that non-addiction specialists so – one of the first things you need to do before you go any further is a completely thorough history, not just a physical. You need to be doing some lab tests. Some of the ones recommended are CBC, liver function test, hep A, B, and C, HIV, tuberculosis, and STDs. If it's a woman of childbearing age, you're going to make sure that you get a pregnancy test. And then once you've got all that done, honestly, that's when some of the hard questions come in. Like, what is the current opioid juice? And all the little factors make a difference. You, when they say heroin, which is a very common thing in this area, okay, well, are you eating it? Are you injecting it? Right. Are you smoking it? Like, how often? So those are all very important factors to pay attention to. And then once you get that information, one of the things you should be doing is some kind of opiate withdrawal scale. Now, there's several of them. The one that was thrown out a lot during the training I attended was CALS, which stands for Clinical Opioid Withdrawal Scale. It's kind of like a CWAS score for alcohol. Okay. It, it's something you can do, and they, they judge 
uh, or it's just used to help grade things. That is a little different. Opiate withdrawal itself has different grades. So this is actually a separate scale. Like they work together, but it's a separate scale. Uh, opiate withdrawal is graded one to four, one being like early withdrawal, four being uh, three or four days into it. And it's, it's symptom-based. So you can kind of say, oh, my patient's at a grade two, et cetera. And when you're doing all that stuff, those are vitally important to the addiction specialist or treatment centers because, and we're going to cover this here in just a second, some of these medications you cannot give unless they are within withdrawal. And that was new information to me. And I have heard that part um, as far as, I believe it's Suboxone, not that I have my Suboxone waiver, but I do know of... And, you know, you, you talk about knowing your resources. I do know who in the area does. And that was my understanding was they have to be off of opioids like I believe it's like 72 hours or so before they can be seen for assessment to start on Suboxone. Yeah, it, it depends on the medication. And we're going to cover the three main medications. I mean, again, this is such an in-depth subject. We're just trying to give you some highlights. of Right. We're but yeah. Strokes, um, yeah. Yeah. So Suboxone, and we'll get into the Suboxone we're just using as a general term for bupropenephrone. I think I said that correctly. I butcher that name severely. So if you hear me say Suboxone or Subutex, that's the medication. I'll try and say it again here in a minute that we're referring to. But yes, Suboxone is a medication that they need to be in slight withdrawal. Versus a medication like Vivitrol, which they have to be in complete opiate withdrawal. Like they have to be seven days free oh, okay. before we can we can use it. So we'll get into that here in a second. But like we were talking about UAs earlier, some of the things you need to know about, and this is where I was saying earlier, you need to know what you're looking at before you jump someone's gun is what are you looking at? So for example, there is a metabolite of heroin. It's 6-acetylmorphine. So if they come to you and they say, I didn't do heroin. They don't have 6-acetylmorphine. Guess what? They didn't because the only thing in the world that produces 6-acetylmorphine is the human liver after it metabolizes heroin. So that's an important thing to go. If you're like, well, you have this, this, and this. Well, if they don't have that, they're, they're not using it. Nor buprenorphine is the metabolite of Suboxone. So the reason that's important is if you go down that road or you're the primary care provider for one of these patients and this doesn't show up in their urine, they're not taking their medication as prescribed. And that's something that needs to be addressed. So again, it's it's one of those things that's important to know. And I did not know this. If you take Suboxone, it comes in two forms, film or a pill, and you dip that film into urine, the initial test will show up positive. That's why it's important to send it off for that second level so that they can find that norbuprenorphine God, I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> to see that metabolite, because if that metabolite's not there, guess what? They just tried to pull a quicken on you, and you need to have a talk with them. I would think if you're doing a, a random drug screen or a rapid drug screen, I think it's bad practice to base any decision off of a rapid. As far as oh, okay, well, because I have had some that come back. Oh, well, it looks like you're positive for this, and then when we send it off for confirmation, it's not. You can get false positives or false negatives on those testings. So I would never base a treatment decision personally on a rapid test. Testing that we actually do, we contract with the company and we overnight the urine to them, and then in about three days we get the full confirmation testing, and it tests for tons of medications. And that's it's important to know what you're being tested for because most urines currently, well, I, I, there's a shift going on. Like they even updated that in the training manual, but it says basically, Hey, most businesses aren't testing for this because guess what? If you do not test for these specific compounds and metabolites, it's not going to show up. So you might be like, well, I'm going to double check. Well, guess what? You didn't check for six acetylmorphine. So you're not going to find out. Right. So that's important to know. So since we brought this up, let's get into the medications for treatment. So the three most widely known, what do you think they are, Ben? Um, I can think of two probably, uh, which would be Suboxone and Methadone. Correct. And the third is something we'll talk about. It's not as widely used. It's mostly known by Vivitrol. So Methadone is known by two other names, which is methadose or dolophine, bupropenephrine. Oh God, again, I'm sure someone's going to want to hatchet me for what I'm doing to that word. Um, comes in two widely known, which is Suboxone, which is a combination of that and Narcan. The, those two medications are mixed in the Suboxone versus Subutex, which is just the bupropenorphine. God, 
Dang it. And then the final one is Nalexatron, which is the Vivitrol in the IM form. And there is a pill form called uh, Revia. So those are just kind of all the names just so they're out there so people understand. But again, all these medications should be part of a treatment program involving mental health. And they are all category C for pregnancy. So you can give them to pregnant women that are being treated, but there's a there's a little hitch with that with the uh, Vivitrol, so we'll talk about that in a second. The rough broad strokes, methadone is an opioid agonist, and it's usually used in daily treatment. It comes in a tablet, a solution, or a diskette form. I'm not really familiar with the liquid or diskette form, and it's usually, I shouldn't say usually, it can only be prescribed for use in a mat at a SAMHSA-certified opioid treatment program. So if, if it's being used for addiction, they're the only ones that can give it. But it can be used outside of that only if it's being part of a pain management. So Suboxone and Methadone are part of a pain management strategy. So that's just important for people to understand if they run into this. Methadone, since it is so tightly controlled, really should only be used with people that are really highly motivated to complete this program because they were giving us examples at the training, which was you might have to show up to the methadone clinic at 6 a.m. and stay there till 10 every day. Like that's a pretty rough schedule if you are not ready to do all the work for it. And like you kind of made the reference there to the methadone, methadone clinic. And that's kind of what I think you, if you think back into like, you know, pop culture type movies and stuff. I and mean, that's kind of what you see is that, I mean, that's what everybody knows. It, you know, it's the methadone clinic. So I'm kind of glad that you mentioned those words because that's that's what people associate that with i think i i don't want to say it was the first time but it's the first time i can think of it was i heard kid rock talks about methadone clinics in a couple of his songs yeah yeah i do remember that yeah yeah. so i'll I'll skip over some of the stuff i had written about this for you know cautions with use because i don't think any of us are going to be doing this i just want people to have some understanding but you do need to know it can be used for pregnancy and they actually recommend that if it's an addicted person that's pregnant that the methadone should be started as soon as possible in the pregnancy for adjustment which i thought like you automatically think oh you don't want them on it no they're like no you need to get them on it and get it started as soon as possible it can be used in nursing mothers as well so that's important now obviously methadone is one of the medications you have to worry about abuse or diversion so and diversion is just the general term for they're doing stuff with it they're not supposed to right i'll go briefly over naltrexone because not a lot of people are going to run into that it does come in oral form and im form the tablet is basically used not as for the beginning of treatment because it's only got like 72 hour coverage the im injection is up to 30 days. So that's that's for a person that is well into this program or into this treatment, and they're not going to worry about it. Now, it's important that they are medically identified because it is a complete opioid antagonist, and it will block any reception. So they come into the ER for some kind of trauma, and you're trying to intubate them, you're going to have a problem. Right. You need to be aware. You need to be aware of what's about to happen because guess what? Nothing you give them that's opiate-based is going to have effect. It's it's going to be a problem, and that's because it basically blocks those. So it's I mean that's what yes. it's designed to do. Yes, exactly. They recommend this is really used for patients that actually have a licensure or something like that, like lawyers, physicians, APPs, people that have a end goal and do not, can be monitored in, in such a way that it's not going to interfere with their life, but that they can be getting this medication. So it is, it is a, I don't want to say patient specific, but it certainly is a way different way to treat them. Oh, you can use it for pregnant women. There is no evidence of harm to the fetus. However, Usually these patients are low rate of relapse for addiction. So they actually re- recommend if you can get them off. So if you're the primary care for a person and they're like, oh, I'm pregnant and blah, 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 they need to be getting off that medication if possible. There is no chance, though, for abuse or diversion because, well, you're injecting it into them. So Right. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was a little tougher. And I, and I will tell you from the ER setting where we're at, I've had those patients. I've had those patients come in and they're like, I'm on Vivitrol. Like that's an instant, like boom! You're going to be changing some some issues uh, depending on what your what their complaint was. But I I've had those patients, and it is a they are very upfront. I'm on Vivitrol. Do not give me you know. Don't try give me. Don't do anything. I don't want it. 
and and it's for a good reason. So, Tom, I have a question, and if you can answer this, great. If not, we'll edit this out. <laughs> um, Fair. So, the Bevitrol, because you went through some of the training, is it? Does it just block the opioids? So, like, if you give them, if you give them tenamorphine IV, it's just not going to do anything. Or does it cause like a horrible reaction like the medication for alcohol like and abuse? Well, that I didn't get a specific answer on. So this is – I'm going to hazard a guess. So if I'm completely wrong, I'm going to be upfront about it. Based on what we were told is – first of all, first of all, let's get this. Why would you be giving someone 10 of morphine? Jesus Christ. I would just – don't <laughs> Okay. So basically, first of all, you're going to – it's not going to have any effect. Right. But again, here, here's the problem is that if you eventually give them an, I'm assuming there is going to be a threshold that you will flood their mu receptor and you're going to get an opiate into that. At that point though, you have caused two huge issues. One, they are going to, they have no tolerance whatsoever. You are going to instantly down this person. Yeah. Okay. And second of all, now they can no longer use Vivitrol. You have basically erased all. Now, if it's emergency surgery, you do what you got to do. I don't think any addiction specialist is going to say, well, you know, you should have left that leg on. Don't amputate it, you know, because of Vivitrol. I don't think anybody would do that. And I know actually one of the physicians that taught this class was a, a, a uh, anesthesiologist. And he's like, yeah, they're going to want to know. <laughs> like, this is going to be a thing. Like, they need to be aware about this. But that's – I think that's the – not only just side effect of what you would have to do to – not only are you going to have to give them some massive amount to get any analgesic effects, but you are basically hitting the reset button on their life. And I think that's one of the big things that they are aware of. So that's that's the the push and shove with – with the Vivitrol. So let's get into this last one so we can get out of here. This is the one everybody knows about, Suboxone or Subutex. So I told you before, Subutex is just the pure buprepinorphine, which again, I'm not even sure if I'm saying that 100% correct, uh, because nobody really calls it that. Like uh, the addiction specialist did, but everybody else just says Suboxone, and we know what you're talking about. Uh, Suboxone is a mixture of that with naloxone. It comes in a pillar film that has to be dissolved. In your mouth. If you swallow either of these, you're, nothing is going to happen. So I don't know what chemical reaction they've done to make that happen, but your body will not digest it. So if you swallow it, you just wasted that dose. That's not going to happen. It is used primarily daily. However, there are alternative dosages and schedules. So that's where you really need to know your drug and your patient. Because we also had some ER physicians in training, and we're looking at ERs actually starting this process. So this will come down the pipe if you are one of our ER providers listening. If you have heroin in your area, this is going to come to you. You're, you're going to be in the loop at some point. But here's something I did not know before training is that Suboxone can actually be used for pain management. It's not widely used currently, but it is something – that may be an available tool. And with all the stuff we talked about earlier, that might be a good thing. It might be a good thing to have a patient on Suboxone that's tightly regulated, that has a partial agonist, and that's what technically these medications are. They're opioid partial agonists to, to help regulate how we're treating them. So I, th I think that's a really good thing, I, and I never thought about that before. Here is where some of the tightening of the process comes in, though. Only medical professionals with federal waivers for prescribing Suboxone or Subutex and have an X starting DEA number. So when you go through this training and you get your federal waiver for Suboxone, you get a new DEA number, and it starts with an X. So it's a very, like, you know, <laughs> like this, this is what's going on. So it's not on every medication. You'll still have your regular DEA number. But if you were to prescribe Suboxone or Subutex, you have to use your XDEA number. So that's, that's it stands out. You'll know when that's happening. Again, this is something that they want to use for motivated patients because the addiction specialists that were involved in the training I did are very pro outpatient addiction treatment with Suboxone. And so they really want those patients that want to get better, like we were talking about earlier with the smoking. You really need a patient that wants to use it correctly to get to get the most out of this. The only real things that you need to worry about with Suboxone or something like that, I should say only, but some of the things are polysubstance reactions. So if you're on benzodiazepines, 
there's a hepatic or respiratory issues that may arise. Or if you already have hepatic or respiratory issues, Suboxone may not be a good medication for those people. Can be used in pregnancy. There's still not a lot of clinical trials on it, but so far the information that they do have says that this is pretty safe, that there is low levels of the metabolite in the infant's urine or mother's breast milk, though they do sort of suggest if you can switch them to Subutex, but there's not been real push for us to you know switch over if you're treating somebody with that. There is always the potential for abuse, but here's the thing, and now that we're coming closer to the end of this, especially with these medications, the addiction specialists that were doing the training were saying people that are at this level they're no longer getting high. If you've been addicted to heroin for several months to a couple years, you're not really getting high anymore off of the medications. You are simply trying to get back to a normal. So basically they're just trying to like stave off. Withdrawal. Well, the ter- yeah. So some of the stuff like if you, if you look at the opiate withdrawal scales or, or the grading system, it'll tell you, you know, diarrhea, uh, muscle aches, all this stuff that's going to be happening. If you don't want that, you got to take that next hit. And the term, I'm sure there's a thousand, you know, slang terms, but the one most likely used that at least in our circles is dope sick. And you don't want to get dope sick. Dope sick is very specific. Like, Oh, they're coming off an opiate. It's a withdrawal. They're going to start having these symptoms. I I know I've seen it like a movie train spotting. They talk about it and there's a documentary. I want to say it was off HBO called dope sick love. And it's about a couple that's addicted to heroin. That's an excellent, excellent show to watch if you want to see the inside of what's this going on. And it's really sad because it appears that they care about each other, but do they care about the drugs more? And it's it's just sad watching this happen. I th- I think I want to wrap this episode up with we do have a lot of non-healthcare professionals, routine patients that do listen to the podcast. And it feels like the mesothelioma commercials, you know, like you or someone you love have mesothelioma. But, you know, because we do have patients that do listen to the show or non-medical people. So if you are suffering from addiction or if a family member is suffering from addiction, there is a national helpline available. And it is staffed through SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. The hotline or helpline is staffed 24 hours a day. Seven days a week, 365 days a year. That number is 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357. And also, Ben, I would like to say um, if anybody knows someone that is feeling depression, possibly from addiction, or they themselves have some issues, um, suicide rates for people – that are addicted to opiates is sky high. Uh, So please, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. It's available 24 hours a day. It is not worth the risk. If you think someone or yourself is at that point, this is life-saving information. There's actually a song about this number, and he actually uses this number in the song, and it it is a fantastic... I. Even if you don't like rap music, I love rap music, but if you don't like it, you can still listen to the song and take the message away. It's it's just amazing. Have you seen it? It's the name of the song is 1-800. I said I've seen the and maybe it's like I didn't think the one I was thinking of was a rap song, but I know there's a song that like when it displays like the the name of the song on like the smart radios do now, it displays the suicide hotline number. Yeah, he may say that it's by a uh, artist named Logic. He may display the whole number at some point, but I I always just saw my radio it just says one eight hundred, and I know which song it is. And it is a uh, it's a tearjerker if you really listen to it. It's a really important thing that we make sure everybody listening to this, uh, us as providers. Uh, you as nurses, because I, I know some nurses that listen to us. This is life-saving information, both the number Ben gave from SAMHSA and this natural suicide prevention. So please take it all. And I know we threw out a lot of information. Some of it was very dry. We we try to make it as entertaining as possible. But sometimes when you're describing medications in and out, it just, oh, it just gets, it gets tough. It gets tough for us to talk about it. it I'm sure it's got to be tough for some people to listen. But hopefully you did take away some good information or things you didn't know. And I think we're going to do a uh, uh, listener question, correct? Yeah, we had uh, someone reach out to us on our 
Instagram. And the question was basically, they want to talk about the patients who truly need chronic pain management. And if, because it's getting harder and harder to find providers that will do that. And, you know, if they want, you know, there are patients who have to use chronic pain management chronic pain meds to be able to function normally, quote unquote, normally. And so that was the lesson in question, Tom. So from a family practice standpoint, I would say it, kind of like I mentioned earlier, unfortunately, you're going to have to jump through those hoops and you're going to have to find a provider that you can be open and honest with about your pain and hopefully work together to find a solution that works for you that is able to allow your chronic pain patients to still function in society, but still be compliant from the provider standpoint. So in our area, like I said, our state has really tight regulation on what we do or how it's prescribed from our family practice point of view or in the acute like ER setting. There are pain specialists and like leave hospice end of life care personnel that have a much greater latitude with these prescription powers in our state. So it's not saying if you do have a chronic condition, you will not get any medication. It is going to be tougher, right? That's, that's hands down. That's what it's going to be. Like Ben said, hoops, and you're going to be jumping through, but we will get you help as best as we can. I think it is very unfortunate to answer the listener is at the end of the day, People with chronic pain are between a rock and a hard place just as much as the providers because of the restrictions that are now being placed on us. I don't think anybody wants someone to be in pain, but we also know what is happening from the fact that we have overprescribed some of these medications for so long that, and I mean we as in a profession, right. we've done this for so long that we've in effect shot ourselves in the foot and this is the backlash. I hope I really do hope that accountability becomes a bigger issue and that providers that are overprescribing are dealt with so that APPs and physicians like you and I, when we find that person that truly needs our help before we can get them to a pain specialist, we can say, okay, here's what we're going to do. And we're not going to have uh, a regulatory commission breathing down our back. And I do know that the president, whenever he came out in regards to the opioid crisis and Signing legislation, as far as that goes, had also uh, worked to attribute more into research of non-addictive pain medication. So, you know, obviously it's not a a great answer right now, but hopefully in the future we'll have medications that are truly, as you learned in the first episode, (laughs) that are truly non-addictive but will still help with patient's pain. And I know we talked about it then and a little bit, we touched on it possibly in this episode is there is a lot of research going on for that. I, I don't know how close they are. I didn't get any updates or what they may be, especially this partial agonist like Suboxone, those types of medications. I think that's probably going to be part of the future of how we treat with these pain medications, as well as the different receptors. So you may have heard me say mu receptor several times last episode, this episode. There's cap and delta receptors that they may not have some of the same side effects, including respiratory distress, et cetera. Right. And I know that they're looking at medications that can help with that. And so that that is my true, is that we figure out, I mean, and I don't want to say surgical procedures, but God, there, there's got to be something we can start doing or I hope that we're going to start doing to help people and not just say, here, take opium in whatever form you're giving it to them. That's what you're giving them is opium. And I hope for the best. I mean, it's only been around since, you know, 4,000 BC and we were having problems then. So hopefully it's better now. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's, but that's where we're at. I think, I think there will be some chronic pain issues addressed, but it's not going to be soon. And so We're going to have to wade this water together. I do want to wrap this episode up with one little shout out. We did it last week. The Pops Like 101 guys, they actually, I just got finished listening to their episode on addiction and they covered, I don't know if you've seen the movie or not, but they covered um, A Beautiful Boy with Steve Carroll. No, actually I haven't. I was actually listening to the episode on PTSD, so (laughs) I I haven't got to the addiction one. Well, I have not seen the movie yet. I want to watch the movie, but it is... It was basically a book that was written by the son who was addicted to crystal meth and then the dad. And so it's the 
it's both perspectives of the family dealing with somebody who is an addict and then the addict themselves. According to the Pop Psych 101 guys, it, it's very true to life as far as, uh, you know, because Ryan, who's the licensed therapist. So if you are interested in hearing more about that, it is the A Beautiful Boy episode of Pop Psych 101, or you can also watch the movie because apparently it's very true to life. I do want to watch the movie now that I've listened to that episode. Uh, I want to watch that. And again, if you are a movie person, I'm a movie person. There are lots of documentaries on this current crisis. Dope Sick Love is actually old. Uh, I don't remember exactly what it was made, but it still covers this. And like I said, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I have a slightly different perspective because I'm living it and not as uh, someone with addiction or I, I've been fortunate. Nobody in my immediate family is openly addicted. If they are, they have certainly flown under the radar, though I have a large amount of medical professionals and law enforcement in my family. So if they're flying that far under the radar, I don't know how we're going to find them. But it, well, I mean, it's true. Like, geez, you fooled uh, 35 people. You're doing really good. It is a – I've seen both sides of the arguments. I, I hear people say, well, you know, it's their own fault. You know, we should just let them die, basically. Um, I've seen the other side where they think we, we need to save everybody. I, I don't think there is a great answer. I, I don't know. I don't have a specific answer. I just know I see it literally every day. And it's certainly something that if we don't deal with it, it's this is the saying. And I, I, I know I talk about being in law enforcement all the time because it's still part of me. It's still blue is still the color of my blood. But, um, you know, we used to say, like, if you don't deal with the bad person, the bad person's going to deal with you. Like, that's why we do our job. And honestly, if you are one of the people that are saying, well, it's their own fault, I look. I, I understand what you're getting at, and I'm not saying there isn't that part of me that doesn't feel like it. But the truth is, if we don't deal with the opiate addiction crisis that's going on, and whole holy crap, meth is a whole another topic. But right, you know, opiates specifically. If we don't deal with this, it is going to deal with you. It is going to touch someone in your family. It may touch you. Or you may be a medical professional having to work with this population like like I am. So you better figure out what you want to do and use some of the information that we have given you over the past couple hours. And hopefully it has helped you, guide you, do something to help you make some of those decisions. Certainly I don't have all the answers, but I, I hope gave some information that's going to help somebody. Yeah, and on that note, we went way long tonight, but we warned you we were going to. <laughs> so, and and I'm sure Sam, the producer, uh, Ben, the magic maker, and Kyle, the sound engineer, are going to be doing a lot of post on this episode. So, <laughs> don't don't fear; it's not going to be the entire time we've been recording, which is a lot longer than you're going to have to listen to. Right. So social media, reach out to us. Let us know what you think of this episode. Let us know your struggles with as a prescriber or as a medical professional or hell, even as a patient. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. Website, www.justsomepodcast.com. Email admin at justsomepodcast.com. Please use the affiliate link if you're going to be shopping on Amazon and give us some ratings, give us some reviews, even if they're crappy, just let us know what's going on so that we can make the show better. And if you are so inclined, though, you know, good ones are always welcome. See, that felt so much better because I did the social media. You did the Amazon affiliate. Yeah, it just felt like hope. <sighs> left shoe is back on the left foot. Yeah. <laughs> but on that note, let's get out of here, Tom. I don't know what we're going to cover next week, but I'm sure it'll be fun, exciting, and hella interesting. Yeah, let's cover something light and airy. Like, um, right. <laughs> A plague. So <laughs> maybe we will cover the plague. Hell, who knows? But maybe it'll have. Hopefully, we can have something and more laughs and and more fun because it's been it's been a, a very informative two weeks. But it, it's kind of a, not a great. It's a great subject. It's not a terribly fun subject. <laughs> That's much better. On that note, hey, this is Ben. Hope everybody has a great week. And I hope everybody stays safe. 